You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. This month, we take a look at cerebral amyloid angiopathy, or CAA. David Waring and colleagues from the Stroke Research Group at UCL Institute of Neurology and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery have revisited the condition in a review this issue. CAA is common and linked with intracerebral haemorrhage and cognitive decline, but despite this, Dr Waring feels it is under-recognised by physicians. I spoke to him about catching it early. Well, this is a very hot topic of research, how we can actually determine the presence of cerebral amyloid angiopathy in life. And we know the impact to healthy lifestyle has a mortality in the general population. But what about for those who've suffered a stroke? Abstaining from smoking and doing regular exercise reduced uh, all-cause mortality after stroke. Before we look into those cutting-edge JNMP papers... Here's one which has inspired 35 years of research. Mark Hallett, who's chief of the Human Motor Control Section at the US National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, told me how his analysis of the patterns of motor output paved the way for better understanding of movement disorder pathophysiology. Mark, tell us what led up to you writing this paper? What sort of stage of your career were you at at the time and, and what influences led you to do the research? This was actually the first work that I had done in the field of human motor control. The way I got interested in it, several years earlier when I was a fellow at the National Institutes of Health, there was a lot of very interesting work going on at the NIH at that time, including a very interesting series of seminars on motor control. Also, we had a journal club that dealt with all topics in neuroscience. The field of neuroscience at that time was sufficiently small that uh, one could hope to understand uh, the, the broad range of it. We began to read a lot of papers on human motor control, and I got interested in the area, and in particular in a paper that uh, Dr. Ronald Angel had written relating to the EMG underpinnings of voluntary movement. And I decided that it would be of great interest to follow up that work. And once you'd done the the paper and the work, could you summarise what was really new about it and how exciting it was at the time? One of the directions that I had always wanted to take this work is move from normal human movement into movement disorders. Mm. So when we got this basic experimental paradigm working and got some underpinnings and some understanding of what went on in normal human voluntary movement, then we went right away to certain movement disorders to see what happened when they tried to make voluntary movements in a similar way. I suppose there was one other element. This pattern of EMG underlying rapid voluntary movement is a very interesting pattern of uh, what's called the triphasic pattern, with a burst of activity in the biceps and a burst of activity in the triceps and another burst of activity in the biceps again, this being for a quick elbow movement, of course. Mm. The question was, where did that pattern come from and whether it was uh, all pre-programmed or whether it was part reflexly derived? And we had the opportunity 
to study a patient that had a severe pansensory neuropathy, so there was no sensory feedback coming from the arm when the arm was making the movement. And that patient had a normal or relatively looking normal pattern. And hence, this was one of the first bits of evidence that this triphasic pattern was, in fact, centrally generated. And how does it feel looking back on this paper and, and seeing all the work that's, that's come out, the authors that have stood on your shoulders, as it were? I suppose I didn't really have the full understanding about uh, the different varieties of pathological mechanisms that we would see in this. The fact that I uh, carried on with this work for several decades and others carried on with it as well, and that it kept illuminating what was going on in pathological conditions, I suppose I couldn't have really expected at that time that it would be as interesting and influential that it turned out to be. Great. Mark, thanks very much for for coming on and telling us about the paper and the commentary. Well, you are very welcome. I'm uh, very pleased to have the opportunity to have done so. And Mark's written about his 1975 paper as the second of our impact commentary series, which is available on jnmp.bnj.com. Next up, cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Why it needs to be detected and how. With me on the line is Dr. David Waring, who's a clinical senior lecturer in neurology at UCL and also a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. Good morning, David. Thanks for, for coming on. Good morning. So you've got a review in this month's JNMP looking at cerebral amyloid angiopathy, or CAA, and you write that it's only been since the 60s that we've really been aware of the link between this and and disease and only more recently that it's been known to be an important cause of intracerebral haemorrhage. With CAA potentially leading to this serious problem, how much do we know about its its prevalence in the general population? This is a, a difficult question to answer because I think there's probably a substantial burden of CAA that isn't recognised, but um, the best quality evidence we have It's from population-based studies, which have looked at populations of um, generally older people because it it is a disease uh, of older people. And what they found is in non-demented individuals, the prevalence of CAA defined pathologically on brain tissue in individuals that have come to um, autopsy is around 20% or so. But if you look at older people who have a pre-morbid diagnosis of dementia, the uh, prevalence of CAA is much higher, up to maybe 50 or 60%. So it's rather a common pathological process in older individuals in our population. So other than patients who already have dementia, are there any other risk factors for for someone developing this or, or who's likely to have some level of it? So the commonest way in which we recognize cerebral amyloid angiopathy in life is um, by the presentation with intracerebral hemorrhage, which is the most serious type of stroke with a high mortality. And the sort of cerebral hemorrhage that makes us think about amyloid angiopathy is hemorrhage in the cerebral lobes of the brain, so rather in the deep structures where hemorrhage is often attributed to hypertensive arteriopathy. If a brain hemorrhage is in lobar structures of the brain, usually in cortex or the cortico-subcortical junction of the cerebral lobes, 
this is a flag that um, we might be dealing with a case of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And it also has a predilection to cause recurrent intracerebral hemorrhage. So a sort of classic case would be somebody who sustained a low bar hemorrhage in, in an older person. Then they may have another low bar hemorrhage in a different part of the brain or even nearby. Is, is there anything we can spot before it becomes symptomatic, before it becomes that serious? Well, this is a very hot topic of research, how we can actually um, determine the presence of cerebral amyloid angiopathy in life um, without having to get brain tissue. And probably the most powerful way is various types of brain imaging. Over recent years, particularly the Boston group, have done a lot of work that shows there is a particular MRI signature for amyloid angiopathy, and in particular, tiny areas of previous bleeding called microbleeds in the lobes of the brain seem to be rather characteristic of this disorder. And there are some diagnostic criteria that are used in research based on MRI characteristics, including the lobar microbleeds. And there are other ways of more directly looking at the amyloid in the brain using molecular imaging with ligands that bind very avidly to the beta amyloid in the blood vessels. There's been less work done on that. And finally, genetic testing. So various genetic polymorphisms, particularly in the APOE gene, are associated with amyloid angiopathy. So there's intense focus on trying to detect this disorder before it causes the devastating um, dementia and intracerebral hemorrhage. As we learn more about the biology of the disease, there may be therapeutic targets by which the, either the production or the clearance of amyloid may be modulated to alter the natural history of the disease. Going from cerebral amyloid angiopathy to um, intracerebral hemorrhage, do we have a good idea of, of how many of the cases of, of ICH are actually caused by CAA? I think the answer to that is we don't have a very clear idea. There are various methodological difficulties with a lot of the case control studies that have been done. But having said all this, the estimates currently suggest that um, amyloid angiopathy probably accounts for something between 5% and 20% of all spontaneous cerebral hemorrhages. And this depends a lot on which populations the studies were done in. And if we look at older patients with low bar hemorrhage, it seems likely that amyloid angiopathy accounts for a very high proportion of these, perhaps even 40 or 50%. Do we have much idea of the pathway between CAA to, to intracerebral hemorrhage? Are there any risk factors for, for developing one from the other? So why do some people with amyloid angiopathy develop intracerebral hemorrhage? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a really, really good question. And um, if we look at the pathology of CAA, it really disrupts the structure of vessel walls. So it's, it's largely a disorder of small arteries. And by that, we mean a few hundred microns up to perhaps a millimeter or two. And as the disease becomes more severe, more and more beta amyloid is deposited in the vessel wall. And this makes it very brittle and it can lead to microaneurysm formation and it can also lead to gross disruption. So at the extreme end, you get what's called double barreling where you get a double lumen of the vessel. And all these changes make the vessel very fragile and prone to bleeding. And presumably there are interactions with the pathology. So things like hypertension might be a possible aggravating factor. 
and often in patients with amyloid-related intracerebral hemorrhage, there may be a history of apparently minor head trauma that could presumably um, lead these very fragile and diseased vessels to rupture. And, and you mentioned um, dementia with regard to, to amyloid angiopathy. Could you tell me a bit more about this and any other conditions that it's, it's known to, to lead to or, or be a risk factor for? There seems to be little doubt that the vascular amyloid does contribute to cognitive impairment. But this, again, is another topic that's quite difficult methodologically. Nevertheless, the prevalence of amyloid angiopathy is consistently found to be higher in people who are demented compared to people who aren't demented. If we take, for example, the MRC, Cognitive Function and Aging Study, amyloid angiopathy was significantly associated with the presence of dementia. So it was nine times more frequent in demented individuals. Evidence is really emerging now that vascular amyloid angiopathy is a key component of um, cognitive decline. And that's very exciting, and not in terms of just understanding what's going on, but also in terms of potential therapeutic targets. Rather different pathways might be targeted um, to, to try and clear the vascular amyloid. Hmm. And then tell me a bit more about the interaction between amyloids, angiopathy, and anticoagulants such as warfarin. That's, that seemed to be an important point that, that came out in your review. Yes, um, this is a biologically very plausible hypothesis that um, the presence of these very fragile bleeding-prone blood vessels could put people at increased risk of bleeding if they're treated with anticoagulants. And in fact, there's some epidemiological to support this idea. If, if one looks at the incidence of anticoagulant-related hemorrhage, it's become much more common and accounts for about 15% of all cerebral hemorrhages. And the demographic group that intracerebral hemorrhage is increasing in is older people with low bar hemorrhage who, who are treated with antithrombotic drugs. But to date, we've only really got good data from case control and case case studies. And these do consistently show associations with amyloid angiopathy markers and anticoagulant-related intracerebral hemorrhage in comparison to other types of cerebral hemorrhage. But what we really need to answer this question is prospective data on patients who are treated with anticoagulants, screening them for evidence of amyloid angiopathy before they are treated, and then following them up for outcome events, including intracerebral hemorrhage. So we need more data, but one could um, foresee a time when if we could screen for this disease before people are treated with antithrombotic agents, one could potentially make this treatment a lot safer. Sure. And is, is there any other advice you'd like to, to give to clinicians or, or things that you'd like to, to be done differently or more? I mean, you're right that the goal should be to detect CAA when it's, when it's asymptomatic. Are there any other ways that you see this happening? Well, one thing I would like to mention is the clinical syndrome of transient focal neurological episodes. This is basically a syndrome of recurrent stereotyped attacks of focal neurological dysfunction. If one looks at what's been described in, in case reports and case series so far, the most common clinical syndrome is of uh, spreading sensory symptoms, particularly paresthesias, pins and needles. Uh, so this is a positive neurological symptom and typically migrates between one body part and another. These are brief attacks, usually a number of minutes, nearly always less than about half an hour, and they often recur. 
And what happens in clinical practice is these are often diagnosed as being transient ischemic attacks, for which, of course, the treatment is to put someone on antithrombotic drugs. And what's become apparent fairly recently is that these attacks seem to have a high risk of future serious intracerebral hemorrhage, so lobar hemorrhage, and they're rather characteristic of amyloid angiopathy. And um, work is ongoing to try and systematically look at how prevalent these attacks are in amyloid angiopathy and exactly how big the intracerebral hemorrhage risk is from these attacks. We're only realizing quite how common these are with the increased use of MRI scans in our TIA clinics and in our neurology clinics. And it's quite important to recognize because I think if you do the right imaging and you see evidence of amyloid, so this includes microbleeds but also cortical siderosis and cortical subarachnoid bleeding, this would be a real red flag to saying that antithrombotic drug, drugs are probably contraindicated as uh, these attacks may carry a very high risk of future cerebral hemorrhage. Great. Um, well, David, thanks very much for coming on and telling us more about your review. It's my pleasure. Thank you. There's far more in David's comprehensive review than we could cover here, including the current and future therapies. So take a look at the full paper for more. We've also got a poll alongside it online, asking whether or not CAA is under-recognised by stroke physicians. Let us know what you think. Now, lastly for this month, what impact does a healthy lifestyle have on mortality post-stroke? I'm joined now by Amatis Tofigi, who's on the line from the Department of Neurology at the University of Southern California. Welcome, Amatis. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You've come to talk about your your patient's choice paper on, on healthy lifestyles following stroke. What evidence is there at the moment in terms of the, the benefits of a healthy lifestyle after stroke? We know that uh, adherence to a combination of healthy lifestyle factors is associated with uh, both reduced stroke incidence and uh, mortality risk in the general population. However, prior to doing this study, little was known about the effect of a healthy lifestyle on the risk of death after stroke. The specific healthy lifestyle practices that have been shown to reduce uh, mortality in the general population include abstaining from smoking, drinking alcohol in moderation, that's one drink per day for women and two drinks per day for men, eating at least five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, and exercising regularly, and finally, maintaining a body mass index uh, in the normal range. However, little uh, was known about whether doing these things improves mortality after stroke. So what we aimed to do in our study was to take a population that was representative of the U.S. population who had had a stroke and then determine if uh, adhering to these five healthy lifestyle practices actually reduced their mortality. What we found is that when we did a multivariate analysis controlling for sociodemographic characteristics and clinical factors, abstaining from smoking and doing regular exercise reduced uh, all-cause mortality after stroke. And combination of healthy lifestyle factors reduce both all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. The benefit increased with the higher number of healthy lifestyle factors that were followed 
for example, for all-cause mortality, there was a 96% reduction when you compared individuals who had four to five factors versus individuals who didn't follow any, whereas um, the benefit was 88% reduction in patients who followed one to three factors versus none. We saw similar benefit for cardiovascular mortality. Okay, so you've almost got a dose response rate there as well. Exactly. That has also been seen in the general population. Can you compare these effects to um, what we know about the effects of healthy lifestyle and mortality in the general population? I'm just wondering if there was anything that seemed particularly relevant to those who'd, who'd had a stroke. The effect size was actually very similar to what was seen in terms of a benefit for primary stroke prevention and also for mortality reduction in the general population. So there wasn't anything specific to this patient population. And what about in terms of clinical guidance? Is there anything you'd change about that in light of your findings? The the interesting thing with our stroke patients were that the not that abstaining from smoking and exercising regularly were the two factors that independently reduced uh, mortality. So that would be a good starting point for emphasis. One note about our study is that we used recommendations that were present back in 1988 to 94 because that was the patient population that we looked at. So our definitions were a little bit more lenient than the current guidelines. For example, for exercise, we just looked like looked at individuals who exercised at least 12 times a month and found benefit even with that. Fantastic. Well, Amethyst, thanks very much for um, coming on and telling us more about this research. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps it up for this edition. Next month, we've got more on cerebral amyloid angiopathy, looking into that link with intracerebral haemorrhage more closely. Angela Vincent, Emeritus Professor of Neuroimmunology at the University of Oxford, will be talking about developments in clinical neuroimmunology over the last couple of decades. And I'll be looking into predicting long-term disability in MS from early clinical characteristics. Come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.